Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear how neurologists at Upstate have extended the window of time they have to treat some people suffering from stroke. We can now uh, select patients who may still benefit uh, from the treatment uh, given uh, well beyond the traditional time window that uh, we used to have. Then we'll look at research into the cause of Crohn's disease. So we get into here the, the debate, is it genetics or is it the environment, you know, what you eat? And, and I think the, the, what it's coming down to is a combination of both. And we'll explore the outlook for people who are diagnosed with sickle cell disease. There are some potential cures for sickle cell disease. Um, one of them is called a stem cell transplant. That's done at big academic centers throughout the country and the world. All that and a visit from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a microbiologist investigates what may cause a major type of inflammatory bowel disease called Crohn's disease. Then, a pediatrician with expertise in hematology discusses sickle cell disease. But first, the medical director of Upstate's stroke program explains what's new in acute stroke care. Hopefully, you've already heard that time is a critical element in the treatment of stroke. Here today to share with us how the stroke team at Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center is able to offer more time to some patients is the medical director of the stroke service, Dr. Jean Latore. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So the clot-busting medicine, TPA, is most effective when it's given to someone whose stroke began within the previous four and a half hours. So what happens with patients who awaken paralyzed by stroke with no way of knowing if the stroke occurred right after they fell asleep at 10 or right before they woke up at 5? Yeah, in the past, we really don't have any option for these patients because uh, we don't have any evidence that any treatment beyond what uh, we normally do, which is the intravenous TPA, uh, works for them. Uh, recently, there have been uh, a number of uh, studies that show that if you um, uh, use a special catheter, you can actually um, select patients who may still benefit um, if they have the symptom within the uh, six to eight hours from symptom onset. So not four and a half, but longer yep. time. So okay. we can extend a little bit the time window of treatment for some patients, uh, selected patients who uh, appear to be having a stroke but uh, don't have a uh, the, uh, um, the f uh, but, but they don't have a uh, completed stroke yet. So um, strokes evolve over time. That's the reason why uh, time is uh, of the essence. And the longer uh, it takes for treatment to be uh, given to the patient, the greater the, the, the size of the stroke. And so there are uh, uh, patients who, even uh, if they are having stroke for uh, up to six hours, because they have uh, collateral circulation in their uh, brain, uh, they may still be amenable to, uh, to treatment. And these are the types of patients that uh, with uh, appropriate imaging and appropriate selection, uh, we can um, uh, treat uh, with this uh, special catheter up to six to eight hours. What's um, collateral circulation? 
So these are uh, additional uh, blood vessels that uh, your brain uh, has in reserve. Um, so that when you uh, when one of the uh, blood vessel uh, gets blocked, there are um, uh, other ways by which uh, blood flow can uh, can go to that part of the brain that's affected. So it's like rerouting around yeah, the blockage. Yeah. Or? So it's like huh. when you have traffic, you have some side roads that opens up uh, to kind of like uh, fill in and uh, and and get the, uh, the the traffic going. So I assume some patients have better collateral circulation than others that's correct some might be candidates and some might not exactly okay so how do you figure out which patient is a candidate and which one wouldn't be yeah so there are a lot of uh, clinical and uh, imaging criteria that we uh, employ to uh, evaluate patients who may be uh, eligible for treatment and this is the uh, reason why patients uh, need to be in a specialized center who can uh, evaluate them and uh, uh, provide the uh, uh, different uh, therapeutic options um, very, very quickly. So imaging like CT scan, CAT scans, magnetic? Yeah, we employ uh, multimodality imaging, uh, such as uh, uh, special CAT scans, CAT scans that uh, look at the blood vessels, CAT scans that look at the viability of brain tissues, uh, we also do sometimes uh, MRI if it's available, but for the most part, because uh, um, there are a lot of contraindications to MRI, such as if you have stents and metals in your body, oh, most okay. of the time we uh, typically just uh, uh, use uh, the, the CAT scans and uh, it's uh, other multimodal uh, um, you know, um, uh, imaging. So what, what happens if you were to give TPA, this uh, clot-busting medicine, to someone outside that window is it dangerous to give it to someone that's um yeah it's uh, dangerous because uh, the um if if your stroke is older than four and a half hours the likelihood of benefit from uh, tpa goes down significantly and uh, in addition to that the likelihood of um getting harmed by TPA as a result uh, with the development of a hemorrhagic transformation of the stroke and uh, cerebral swelling becomes uh, uh, higher than your potential for benefit. And that's the reason why um, that uh, four and a half hour is a very, very important uh, cutoff because uh, beyond that uh, uh, time, um, the, 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 the risk of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, worsening is uh, far greater than the potential for benefit. Because if this uh, breaks up clots, it can also cause bleeding. Right? Yes, and um, you know the the uh, as I said, the brain dies uh, per minute that uh, is not being treated when you're having a stroke, and the greater the death, uh, the greater the area of the brain that's dead the uh, greater the likelihood that uh, you're going to hemorrhage if you do any uh, treatment. Um, mm. and, and so the greater the, the, the uh, brain that's, uh, that's dead, um, beyond that um, four and a half hours, um, there will be um, less um, likely that you will benefit because the brain would have died already. And there is a increased risk of uh, hemorrhage because those uh, that part of the brain that's dead are now uh, uh, subject to uh, hemorrhagic transformation. Okay, and that would be permanent damage. 
Yes, and that can also actually uh, cause uh, more secondary brain damage. So it can um, cause uh, damage that are uh, greater than the damage as a result of the initial stroke. Okay. Well, tell us about this new software program that Upstate, uh, the Comprehensive Stroke Center, has for assessing. Yeah, so um, I told you that in the uh, recent um, uh, um, past, we've uh, extended a little bit the time window to up to uh, six to eight hours. Um, more recently, we have had uh, several studies that show that um, for patients who uh, woke up with a stroke, uh, for patients who actually um, had symptoms that are beyond eight hours, these are patients who uh, were last seen normal um, 24 hours ago. Um, right now, or, or at least uh, several uh, uh, weeks uh, ago, we do not have any treatment options for these uh, patients. But um, uh, as a result of the um, very recent uh, studies that have um, uh, looked into this, and using this uh, special software to select patients who might benefit from this intervention, using a special catheter to remove the clot, we can now uh, select patients who may still benefit uh, from the treatment uh, given uh, well beyond the traditional time window that uh, we used to have. Up to a whole 24 hours. Up to 24 hours uh, in um, selected patients uh, using this uh, rapid software that allows us to determine uh, first, how much of the brain has already died, and second is how much of the brain is still at risk for developing uh, further infarction without treatment. And so if you, if you uh, look at uh, the difference between the, uh, the brain that's already dead and the brain that's still at risk, if the, if the area of the brain that's still at risk is, uh, is still uh, uh, very big, uh, even if the patient uh, last known well was uh, um, more than eight hours ago, these are patients who may still benefit. And in fact, in the studies that uh, have been uh, uh, done, they had to stop the trial um, early because uh, in their interim analysis, they found out that uh, those patients who were treated with mechanical thrombectomy after they have been selected uh, were... Uh, seven times more likely to uh, have a better outcome than those patients who were treated with traditional uh, medical management that uh, we, we uh, used to have. Seven times more likely? That's seven huge. times, uh, yeah. And in fact, uh, we, we have a, 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 um, a term, the number needed to treat for these uh, patients. Uh, for um, um, aspirin to prevent one uh, uh, stroke or one heart attack, you need to treat about 25 to, uh, to 30 patients. Um, for uh, this uh, treatment for a stroke, you only need to treat three patients. To see an effect. To see an effect. Wow. And now, you use the term mechanical thrombectomy, and that's when you go in um, with a device to remove the Yeah, clot. this is okay. similar to what uh, we are now uh, doing for uh, uh, patients who uh, have a heart attack where they have a blood clot in their heart, and the, uh, uh, the doctor will uh, put a catheter on their groin to take the clot out. So this is a, a very similar um, uh, concept where uh, now our catheter uh, is uh, placed uh, from the groin through the blood vessels into the brain, into the brain. Uh, where the clot is, and uh, we can uh, uh, retrieve the clot using this special catheter. Yeah. 
Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Associate Professor of Neurology, Dr. Jean Latore, who's also the Medical Director of Upstate Stroke Service. Um, well, I also wanted to ask you about a trend that's a little troubling. Um, a growing number of young people are said to be at risk for stroke, and young being like 20 to 55. What's going on? Yeah, so right now, you know, we have uh, a uh, an apparent increase in uh, strokes uh, that are found in, in young patients. And uh, part of the um, reason could be that uh, we are now more aware that uh, stroke is happening in young patients. So we are able to diagnose these patients whom in the past uh, probably were uh, uh, diagnosed with different conditions. Um, but more troubling is uh, the uh, increase in the uh, um, new risk factors that uh, we now see for patients uh, uh, who are young who's developing stroke. And, and these are um, uh, recreational drug abuse, so uh, uh, cocaine intoxication, uh, marijuana, um, heroin, uh, fentanyl, in addition to its uh, uh, effect on your uh, lung and uh, on your uh, uh, body function, it can actually cause uh, changes in your blood vessels in the brain, uh, and also it can uh, uh, cause a significant rise in um, uh, blood pressure and, and can cause uh, both ischemic stroke as well as hemorrhagic stroke. Ischemic being the... Uh, ischemic is when clot. A, a clot uh, uh, blocks the flow of blood into the uh, brain, and hemorrhagic stroke is when uh, uh, one of the blood vessels burst and causes a hemorrhage inside the brain. Is it difficult to convince young people that they're at risk for stroke? Because I think a lot of people think stroke is an old person's. Yeah. Thing. So the current, um, you know, concept of uh, young people is are is that they they um, they're not at risk for stroke, and that's uh, actually uh, not true. Um, a stroke happens in all ages. They're definitely more common in old people. Uh, but uh, it uh, it happens in, uh, in in young as well, especially. Uh, uh, for those who have uh, risk factors. Well, we're seeing a lot more young people with diabetes, so that's a risk factor, right? Yes, uh, diabetes, hypertension, uh, smoking is still very rampant among uh, young people, uh, alcohol abuse, um, you know, um, sedentary life, as well as uh, uh, excess uh, intake of uh, fatty foods and, uh, and salt. So these are, uh, uh, you know, hypercholesterolemia is uh, another risk factors for stroke. It's high cholesterol. High uh, cholesterol, okay. yeah. Well, um, while I have you here, let's remind us again about the signs and symptoms of a stroke. So we always uh, tell uh, the, the public, you know, uh, the, the best way to, uh, to remember this is to uh, remember the word FAST, okay, F-A-S-T. Uh, F means face, A is uh, arm, and S is speech, and T is time. So if you're having uh, trouble with your face, either having a, uh, a symmetry or droop on your face, if you're having trouble with uh, your arm being weak or numb, or if you're having trouble with your speech or language, you cannot talk or you're having difficulty uh, talking, these are the most uh, common signs of stroke. And um, when, when any one or all of these are happening, T means uh, it's time to call 911. And so, um, you know, when you're having a stroke, you want to act fast. 
And uh, using this uh, acronym, when you're having these uh, symptoms, uh, it's best to always uh, call 911 rather than, you know, call anybody else or uh, drive yourself to the hospital. Because if you're in the ambulance, a lot of uh, preparation can happen. The ambulance uh, uh, paramedics can call the hospital before you arrive. And so the team will be ready by the time that you arrive uh -huh. and a proper treatment can be uh, provided within a very short period of time. Would the person having a stroke necessarily be able to recognize these things or would you be... Sometimes you can, but a lot of, okay. uh, sometimes you, uh, there's part of the brain that also prevents you from recognizing that something is wrong. So if you have a uh, stroke that happens on the right side of your brain, sometimes you may not even notice that uh, you're having a stroke. And so it's very important not only for, uh, for you, but for your uh, other family members to uh, be all uh, educated and aware about these signs and symptoms because uh, if not you, maybe your loved one may be having a stroke. And so you need to be a stroke hero. And a stroke hero is somebody who uh, advocates for a quick treatment and quick um, um, uh, activation of our 911 uh, system so that uh, uh, treatment can be uh, given uh, on time. Terrific. Thank you for talking about this. My guest has been Dr. Jean Latore, the Medical Director of the Stroke Service at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, the research that may reveal a possible cause of Crohn's disease on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Thanks to a fortuitous discovery in his laboratory at Upstate, scientist William Kerr has focused his research on Crohn's disease, a major type of inflammatory bowel disease. Dr. Kerr is currently in Italy doing some cancer immunotherapy research. He's also the professor of pediatrics and microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and he joins us on the phone from Italy. Thank you for talking with us. Hi, Amber. Nice, nice to be with you today. Well, tell me if I understand correctly. Crohn's disease is an inflammatory bowel disease that's treated with steroids and immunosuppressants, and at least currently it can't be cured. Is that correct? No, it, it can't be cured, but it, it can be managed uh, with some of the, the, the therapies you mentioned, uh, things like steroids, which are broad-based immunosuppressive agents, but also there's more selective Immune suppressive agents now, but um, of course, it's not ideal for anybody to be. Uh, the immune system is there for a reason, and it's not a good idea for someone to be suppressed. We, we would prefer someone not to be on immune suppressive drugs for uh, extended periods of time. But yes, it can be managed, and many patients do well on those therapies. And this is um, usually some something. Not. It's diagnosed in younger people. Uh, teens to, to it, it is. It can be diagnosed as early as, you know, a couple months to a year old, uh, but uh, and then sometimes as adult onset, but typically younger adults. 
Now, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America says uh, up to 70% of patients eventually face surgery to repair damage or remove an obstruction. Does that mean? The surgeons will uh, sometimes uh, have to go in and actually resect part of the gastrointestinal tract, literally cut out the really damaged and inflamed part where there's been... uh, you know, damage, such significant damage to the, the tissue that it's no longer functioning problem, problem, properly. And that in, uh, can lead to uh, problems. Um, we, we don't want our intestinal content spilling out into our body. That's uh, really dangerous, actually. Right, right. Well, do we know what causes Crohn's disease? Well, it's uh, not going to be any one single factor. There's both. So we get into here the, the debate, is it genetics or is it the environment, you know, what you eat? And and I think the, the what it's coming down to, it's a combination of both. Um, there are certainly some genetic mutations, and, and we verified that in the mouse with our, uh, making a mutant of a gene that caused inflammatory bowel disease. But uh, there may be situations where, someone doesn't have a clear genetic uh, predisposition but still develops uh, inflammatory bowel disease, and perhaps that could be uh, something that uh, in their lifestyle or their environment that caused that. So, And then there's probably people who are, it's a mixture of both. They maybe have uh, some genetic predisposition to develop it, but uh, then also have some other lifestyle or environmental issues that trigger the disease. So it's uh, it's not going to be a, a you know a single uh, overarching explanation for all cases of disease. So the work that you focused on with this gene, um, the SHIP gene, right? The SHIP SH. Well, I'll just give you the the actual SH two containing an acetyl five prime phosphatase. <laughs> so it's SHIP, SHIP for short. <laughs> Yeah, so, so that's why we use that acronym, so we don't have to torture people. Is this a gene that everybody has? Yes. Uh, it's found in humans. It's found in uh, mice, dogs, cats, uh, even uh, fish have it. So it's uh, been a pretty good deg- uh, degree of evolutionary conservation. So, and then some of the people who have Crohn's have a, a problem with this gene or a deficiency? or Right. So that's the paper that we just... Uh, uh, were able to publish in PLOS uh, One. Uh, That's a journal. A, a plus scientific journal. Okay. Uh, it's an open access journal. Anybody can go online and find this paper uh, and not have to pay a charge to download it and look at it. But um, So the the finding is we did a, after we found that when we mutated the SHIP1 gene in mice and, show, and found that they got a disease that very much looked like human Crohn's disease, they had severe inflammation in their small intestine including strictures and fissures in their intestinal uh, tissue, you know, small holes or tears, if you will. And um, we say, well, maybe this, since this gene is found in humans and it's conserved uh, between mouse and humans, maybe we should go look and see if there's a problem. And um, the initial study we've done, which is now published, is with a group in Rotterdam. Uh, it was with Gwenny Fuller. Um, Gwenny was a postdoc with me uh, in um, at Upstate, but also uh, when I was still at Moffitt Cancer Center, but she moved to or came to Upstate with me. And she had access to a cohort of 
Crohn's disease patients at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, a huge medical center in Holland. And we analyzed the expression of the SHIP1 gene at the protein level and found approximately 15% of patients, Crohn's disease patients, have little or no expression of uh, SHIP1. So that said, told us that, hey, a significant percentage, about 15% uh, of the Crohn's disease patients could possibly have something wrong with SHIP1, just like we've, and that may be contributing or, or perhaps even causing their disease, just like the mutation that turned off the SHIP1 gene in mice caused them to have Crohn's disease. Um, we've since validated this, this, this study isn't published, but we're submitting uh, this paper for publication very soon. Uh, validated the findings in the, in the Dutch cohort uh, in a second cohort of human IBD patients in San Francisco, collaboration with Jay Ryan, a gastroenterologist at the San Francisco Veterans Hospital. And, um, and there again, looking at a larger patient population, almost 90 patients, we again see about 14, 15% of patients are SHIP uh, one we call it deficient. They don't have enough expression, uh, abnorm really abnormally low levels of the SHIP1 gene are uh, expressed or turned on. Interesting. Well, I've got a few more questions, but this is Upstate sure, HealthLink sure. on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking by phone with scientist William Kerr, a professor of pediatrics and microbiology and immunology at Upstate. Uh, so you plan to expand this and look at even more patients, right? Right. Well, one of the most exciting things that's come, especially from the second study that um, that hasn't published yet, we published this, the first study in a small group of patients, but the second study was in a larger group of patients, almost 90 patients, and that allowed us to, because we had a larger number, allowed us statistically to ask, are the patients who are SHIP deficient, do they have more severe disease than any other problems? And in fact, they do. So uh, it, it seems that people who are patients uh, who have Crohn's disease patients who are SHIP1 deficient, don't have enough SHIP1 expression, have much more severe disease. And in fact, they have a much higher probability that's statistically significant of having required that surgical resection we talked about earlier oh. in the interview. Uh, they're, 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 their disease has been so bad that the surgeon has not only had to go in once, but sometimes twice to remove uh, inflamed portions of their bowel or intestine. And so that is, you know, not the kind of outcome you want uh, in Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. You don't want to end up on a, on, on a surgery table. And, in fact, these patients who are SHIP-1 deficient have ended up, um, uh, have a much higher probability of uh, frequency of having ended up having a surgical resection, not only once but twice, so now what we're hoping is we can now assay people early on, as soon as they're diagnosed, for whether their SHIP-1 expression is at a normal level or it's abnormally low. So is that abnormally low? Excuse me just a second. Is, is, that, um, is that a genetic, a blood test, or a, how do you do that? It's how a blood test, that? exactly. We can uh, take some of the blood cells, just a couple million. It's not a lot of blood. It's basically a, basically a tablespoon of blood. Perhaps even we can do it with smaller quantities, and look by uh, both two different assays, but either one works—a flow cytometry assay, um, 
or a uh, what's called a Western blot, where we're looking for expression of the protein, the SHIP1 protein, in their blood cells. So it's not invasive. That's important. We don't have to endoscope them or um, do any kind of invasive assay. We just take a little blood out of their arm um, and, and do this assay, and then within a day or so we can know the answer. What's exciting also is we found a molecular genetic marker at the RNA level that seems to highly correlate with them being SHIP deficient. They have an altered form of the SHIP1 messenger RNA that oh. we can detect by a procedure called uh, RT-PCR, uh, reverse transcriptase uh, polymerase chain reaction. Uh, sorry, it's an acronym. But anyway, that assay is also very robust. So we're hoping we can have what's uh, some kind of prognostic indicator for as soon as you're diagnosed, like, are you going to have a mild form of Crohn's disease and, and we maybe can just sort of watch and follow you and see how you do? Or are you likely destined to have a very severe form and then we need to take what's called, the clinicians call a top-down approach. We, we then treat those patients with... Um, and immune, very strongly suppressive immune suppressive drugs, perhaps Humira would be a possibility, and and from the very beginning, so that they don't end up on a surgeon's table. We don't want that. We don't uh, want to ha have so, anybody undergoing surgery. We don't want the disease to get that far. So the things you've already learned about this disease are informing its treatment already, right? Well, we hope so. Um, it's it's early, but. Um, our analysis of this second cohort, as I mentioned, the larger patient cohort where we had larger patient numbers has told us people who are SHIP-1 deficient don't have enough expression of the SHIP-1 gene. They have abnormally low levels or no expression of the SHIP-1 gene. Require surgical resection not, not just once but sometimes twice. Um, so those are the kinds of patients we, wanna, we would want to identify early as soon as they're diagnosed no, are they SHIP-1 deficient? Do they not have enough SHIP-1 expression? And if they do, then maybe what should be done clinically, and this is uh, something I'm discussing with my clinical colleagues, my gastroenterology colleagues, could this be used as a test to treat those patients in what's called a top-down manner clinically? In other words, treat them with very aggressively with the most uh, advanced, usually higher risk, but we know this patient's going to not do well, or at least predicted from our assay for SHIP-1 expression, then let's not take the chance that they develop severe disease that requires surgical resection, because we never, we don't want to have to go in and take anybody's intestinal bowel or intestinal tract out. Uh, so, you know, that's that's not, we don't want the disease to progress to that severe stage. Um, and, and alternatively, someone who's not SHIP-1 deficient, we could just take a, a wait-and-see uh, slow-as-you-go attitude or approach uh, to treating them clinically. Um, would, would you uh, so that, eventually, right. like going into the future, would you look at maybe trying to do something to that gene or repair that gene so that it... Right, right. So we're, we're still trying to understand at a, at a very basic fundamental molecular level what happens that the SHIP-1 gene is not expressed at the protein level appropriately. We don't yet have that answer. Um, in fact, that's why, as I mentioned earlier, my colleague and I, uh, clinical colleague, uh, Jay Ryan, and I'm also working in a pediatric cohort now with 
Kigwali at the Golf Sano Children's Hospital. So we're, we're looking in, in children and adults. And both uh, Dr. Wally and Dr. Ryan um, and I are, are writing grant applications and also approaching uh, a rather large pharmaceutical uh, company who's interested in um, immune suppression in, in IBD um, and about funding for that kind of study. So if we can understand why this gene is not being turned on and expressed at the right level, abnormal levels, we could theoretically uh, then have a chance to either pharmaceutically or use some genetic tools to try to fix it. Wow, well, interesting. But that's, that's sort of down the road. Uh, we have to first figure out what's, what's going wrong, and then we can attempt to try to figure out the, or develop an approach to, to fix it. Well, sure. It's very interesting. My guest has been Professor William Kerr from Pediatrics and Microbiology and Immunology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Health Link on Air. Coming up next, an overview of sickle cell disease. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We have with us today Dr. Katherine Scott. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics, and she works in hematology and oncology. She's also the director of the Pediatric Sickle Cell Program at the Waters Center for Children's Cancer and Blood Disorders here at Upstate. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So how does a person find out they have sickle cell disease? So here in New York State, we have a test for sickle cell disease that's part of the newborn screen. This is a blood test that every infant uh, has in the first few days of life with a heel stick at the hospital. Okay. So that's, you find every, all, all of the babies get tested, so they all are referred to you automatically. Exactly. Yep. This Department of Health for New York State contacts my office and the child's pediatrician informing them of the positive sickle cell test result, and um, we get them in for a new consult within the first few months of life. So who gets sickle cell? What types of uh, patients are you seeing? Well, sickle cell disease primarily affects children of African and Caribbean descent and, to a lesser degree, children of Middle Eastern and Indian descent. It's a common inherited blood disorder in those populations. Why do they call it sickle? Well, they call it sickle cell disease because normal red blood cells and those that are not affected um, with sickle cell disease, their normal red blood cells are flexible and in an oval shape. Um, individuals with sickle cell disease, their red blood cells uh, change shape into a C shape, which resembles the farming tool called the sickle. So that's where the name comes from. Okay. And so they lose the flexibility too when they change shape? 
Exactly. Sickle, in sickle cell disease, the red blood cells become stiff and fragile, and they stick together, leading to blockages in blood flow in the small blood vessels. And they only live about 14 days, whereas regular normal red blood cells tend to last up to 120 days. Oh. What, uh, what sorts of symptoms do uh, patients get if, if they have sickle cell disease? What are the symptoms? So the um, inflexible stiff red blood cells and the lack of blood flow in the small blood vessels leads to a decrease in the ability of the blood to transport oxygen. Um, and this uh, leads to anemia and pain, organ dysfunction, and other serious life-threatening complications. Uh, these symptoms do not typically start until the infant is at least six months of age. Oh, okay. So the babies that are first born don't have symptoms yet. No, not typically. Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned complications. What are some of the most common of the complications that you see? So early on, starting around six months of age, one of the most common ways infants um, show their disease is with um, pain and swelling in their hands and feet. This is something called dactylitis. And oftentimes we have to bring them into the hospital and give them IV hydration and pain control. Um, also, early on, one of the organs to be affected first is the spleen. Um, that's an organ in the belly that is a filter for all of the blood. And in sickle cell, that filter, the spleen, can become clogged and cause something called splenic sequestration. And that uh, is also an indication for the child to get admitted to the hospital and perhaps require a blood transfusion. Later on in um, the lifespan of a child with sickle cell disease, they can have things such as sickle cell pneumonia that we call acute chest syndrome, which requires inpatient management, including hydration, IV antibiotics, and occasionally a blood transfusion. Um, and in addition, they are at risk, unfortunately, for stroke um, and infection early on. Wow. Are there... Um Treatment, I mean, those are treatments that you would give when someone has complications, but are there treatments or therapies that people with sickle cell have to take every day just as a kind of a maintenance drug or something? Absolutely. So when the child first gets referred to me, again, I see them in the first few months of life. Um, the first thing I do is start them immediately on penicillin. So that's an oral antibiotic that they take twice a day every day for the first five years of life. Um, and this dramatically reduces the infection rates and death rates of children with sickle cell disease because of the um, organ dysfunction in the spleen that I mentioned, um, you're at risk for life-threatening bacterial infections, and the penicillin can reduce those rates of infection and death dramatically. In addition, around nine months of age, we start them on hydroxyurea. This is an oral medication taken once a day, um, and they are on it indefinitely as of now, um, from nine months until uh, we come up with something better or new. And that is a medicine that... Um, helps the body produce a different kind of hemoglobin, no longer sickled hemoglobin, but um, a hemoglobin called fetal hemoglobin. And this decreases the rates of sickle cell complications dramatically. Oh, neat. But it's not a cure. But... It's not a cure, no. There are some potential cures for sickle cell disease. Um, one of them is called a stem cell transplant. Oh. And um, that's done at big academic centers throughout the country and the world. Um, it's a potential cure. Sometimes it doesn't work, and there are some um, risks to that procedure. Um, which so a stem cell transplant is a is a blood where you explain what that is. Stem cell transplant is where you basically take the bone marrow um, contents, which are your stem cells in everybody's body. You get rid of the patient's bone marrow contents, and you transplant a donor's bone marrow contents and their stem cells, and that. Uh, 
part of their stem cells can turn into red blood cells, and therefore the donor who doesn't have sickle cell will give their normal red blood cells to the sickle cell patient, and it's therefore a cure. Does it have to be a, a donor who matches your blood type, or can... There are several genetic markers um, called HLA markers that we do need to match between donor and recipient in order for the stem cell transplant to be successful. And sometimes it can be difficult to find the appropriate match, which limits our ability to use this therapy. Okay, so it's not for every patient? Not for, for everybody. Mm -hmm. The best donor is a matched sibling donor, and not every patient with sickle cell disease has a matched sibling, sibling donor. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Katherine Scott. She's the director of the Sickle Cell Program at Upstate. Well, does um, sickle cell disease necessarily shorten someone's lifespan? Um, it does right now. It, uh, the lifespan of individuals with sickle cell disease is much longer now than it used to be. Um, we generally say the average lifespan for an individual with sickle cell disease these days is somewhere in their 50s. Okay, and it used to be much less. It used to be much younger, absolutely. And the reason that we're, we've been successful in prolonging life with sickle cell disease is because of penicillin, as I mentioned, in the first five years of life. That used to take a lot of children um, from infection early on. And then in addition, we have much improved supportive care, including the hydroxyurea that I mentioned and um, transfusions and better hospital care. Interesting. Do we know what causes sickle cell? Well, yep, mm -hmm. sickle cell is an inherited blood disorder. It's from a single point mutation in the gene that makes part of hemoglobin. Okay, so you get it from your parents? Mm -hmm. It your... is an inherited disorder, absolutely. So do both parents have it in order for the baby to get it? or? So both parents need at least to be a sickle cell trait, which is a carrier state, um, uh, or one of the parents can have sickle cell, one or both can have sickle cell disease. Would parents necessarily know that they have the trait before they have children? Oftentimes, no, not in this uh, age, because the newborn screen that diagnoses all newborns now that we talked about before was not uh, available when most of my patients' parents were born. Um, so many of them don't actually know that, um, but... Um, through simple testing, we can help them identify that. Okay. Now, nowadays we can. Now, okay. yes. Well, what do you say to people who are um, newly diagnosed or the parents of a baby who's newly diagnosed? What, what sort of life can they expect? I mean, what, what's life like with sickle cell in 2017? I usually get, paint a very positive picture because honestly with penicillin and hydroxyurea at our disposal, most of my young patients grow up um, with a good quality of life. So as long as they're able to come to their appointments, have routine blood work, and take their medications on time, um, I usually tell families that their children should lead a full and normal life, develop normally as they would have expected. Um, and. Uh, what I actually tell most families of newborns these days is that I believe in their child's lifetime there will be a safe cure for sickle cell. So they just need to get through the health care now. Childhood. And exactly, and wait for the true cure, which has less um, side effects than stem cell transplant or even something like gene, uh, gene therapy. So, yeah, what, what, ty what type of cure do you envision? 
I do think it's going to be something along the lines of gene therapy. So stem cell transplant is one thing, but um, slightly related to that but different is something called gene therapy. And this is where researchers um, have discovered certain genes that they can introduce into the patient uh, with sickle cell to change the way that they make hemoglobin. Um, and this is very promising and currently only available in the f um, setting of a research trial. But soon I believe that it will be more uh, widely available to all patients, and this may this is a promising direction. So for it is showing cell. promise. Absolutely. Neat. How did you get involved? I know you're a pediatrician first, right? How did you get involved in sickle cell disease? Um, so, <laughs> I, you know, I did medical school, chose pediatrics after medical school, and then throughout my pediatric residency after graduating from medical school, um, I took a very early interest in pediatric hematology and oncology, which is the specialty that I'm now in. Um, however, hematology and oncology are very different in many ways, and I um, leaned much more towards the hematology side. And one of the biggest uh, components of pediatric hematology is sickle cell disease. Um, and it's also a group that, um, frankly, is underserved. And I wanted to help as many people as possible. Well, uh, here in the Syracuse area, all of the sickle cell patients come to Upstate. This is the only sickle cell program in this region, right? Absolutely. Yep. So. The nearest other centers are uh, in Rochester or Buffalo. Um, some people may have seen sickle cell depicted on television or in a movie, um, this sickle cell crisis where someone's in pain. Um, is that accurately depicted um, typically? And, and what is that? Does that really happen? So when people say sickle cell crisis, they're typically referring, as you said, to a sickle cell pain episode. Um, this is when those sickled red blood cells stick together, limit blood flow, and therefore cause pain as the cells die from lack of blood flow. So is that pain in the whole body, or where, where is it? Where do you feel it? It can be in the whole body, but usually patients have particular trigger areas in their body where they always experience their pain, um, whether it's in their arms or their legs or their lower back. Okay. Headaches? It's not a, or it is? Um, yeah, well, you can have sickling in any blood vessel that leads to pain in whatever tissues are connected to those blood vessels. Um, headaches make me worry a little more about stroke and other complications of sickle cell other than pain, but certainly my patients can have headaches as well. Um, no matter where their pain is coming from, um, what I hope for them is that they uh, are prepared and to prepare my patients as soon as I meet them, uh, I give them a basically a pain action plan. And this is a magnet that I print out and give to them and they put on the refrigerator, hopefully. Uh, and it, it, it goes over their pain plan. And this is every day, what should you be doing for your disease? And then when you have mild pain, what medicines do you start to take and what do you change? Uh, and then moderate pain plan, and then a severe pain plan. And if it gets to severe pain, what we always encourage them to do is call our clinic um, or go directly to the ER. And our patients are very good at understanding what kind of pain can come to clinic versus what kind of pain requires emergency medical care. Are there things that can be done to um, help the pain? I mean, what are some of the things that they're told to do? So typically my mild pain plan for most of my patients, depending on their age, uh, number one, first and foremost, is to increase their hydration. Uh, a lot of times Drink more pain, water. 
Exactly. A lot of times pain comes from dehydration. The blood becomes slightly thicker and therefore can sickle more easily. Um, and they need to drink more water. I actually give them an ounces goal for the day when they're experiencing mild pain based on their weight. Um, the second thing is to apply heat to the area. So we're distributing heating pads to all of my patients through a charity fund. And they need to apply that heating pad to the areas that are in pain um, immediately. And I usually say 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off as needed. Um, and then <clears throat> they should immediately also take um, one dose of ibuprofen or Motrin, and that helps decrease the inflammation related to sickle cell. That's my mild pain plan. Uh, and then if it, the pain continues, we, start, we recommend taking Motrin around the clock, as well as adding in a secondary pain medication. And this varies between patients, but is usually in the form of a um, mild narcotic. Um, and then if there's severe pain, we continue to encourage good hydration, heat, Motrin, their pain medicine, and um, seeking care, whether it's in our clinic or in the ER. So does this, uh, the sickle cell crisis, does that necessarily happen to everyone? Uh, it doesn't. Um, surprisingly, even though everyone with sickle cell disease should have the same genetic mutation yielding the disease, there is great variation in how they show their symptoms throughout their life, and that is something that we don't fully understand, why there's a difference uh, in symptoms between patients that should have the same genetics. Um, wow. And as we understand that further, I think we'll uncover more and more promising medical therapies for this disease. Well, thank you for talking about this with me. My guest has been Dr. Katherine Scott. She's the director of the Sickle Cell Program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Two of our poets in Muse 16 give us alternate visions of hope that always anticipated and too often delayed part of healing. First, I'd like to read Rick Anthony Furtak, who is a philosophy professor and poet from Denver, Colorado. His poem is called Toward Hope. Ensconced unbearably away from where you longed to be, you heard each overwhelming night go wandering, outstretched like a song. Every dayness broke your calculations, and even when you thought of hazy desert sky as if white hot, the passenger side window was made of tape. Now silence occupies all those noisy spaces. What you recover is never everything, yourself again, yet different in shape or tone. Some of the others whom you thought you'd lost come back, as bashful and as hopeful as once lost recovered sons. And now Central New York poet Mary Gardner, whose most recent book is Settings. It's available from Foothills Publishing. Here is her poem, Untitled. Here, near window door opening to street life, the world waiting for mercy. Today, tomorrow not too far out of sight to imagine its sweet setting down here.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, hear about the value of social interaction for cancer patients. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.